Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Sarah Ahmed, CEO of Warp and Weft and creative director of DL1961. I wanted to ask Sarah about the state of the denim industry as sweatpants and legging sales have boomed and how her approach to tackling current issues has differed across the two brands. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to share our perspective on this. Yeah, excited to talk to you. Uh, I just found out that you are actually not L.A. based despite being a denim brand. Uh, Tell me about that. You're in New York, yes? Yes. So we are actually based out of New York City, both our brands. Um, One is in the premium denim space and the other one is in direct to consumer space. And we're vertically integrated, which gives us amazing access to technologies, fabrications and most most importantly, like a sustainable way to build uh, an amazing denim product. Definitely. Vertically integrated. I've, I've been hearing from some brands um, that as the world has gone crazy and supply chains have been disrupted, um, a lot of brands are moving towards, I guess, diversif- diversification within the supply chain, maybe not putting all their, their eggs in one basket. What have you found has worked for you in having that one owned factory? So this is very interesting. One of the first meetings that we had post-COVID, like when, you know, the whole crisis sort of really hit and everyone went home and the first big team meeting that we had was assuring people that because we were vertically integrated, because we made everything from spinning to final finished garment in one unit, not only were we more sustainable, like which was always, you know, like, the goal of being vertically integrated, right? To, so that you can put everything yeah. in one place and you can build this amazing product without having it, you know, to fly it from all over the world, right? Like pieces right. from all over the world. But because of that vertical integration, our supply chain was not disrupted. That we could actually keep going um, in times where it wasn't certain. Where, the, see, the global supply chain has completely been overturned. It is completely, and it needed to, right? Like there were too many people making too many things and it was, it was a little bit of a mess and like just, you know, the carbon emissions and moving things like, and it would always, as a team, we would always think like, this can't be good. The excess of things cannot be good. And I think the fact that we could see everything and we have accountability for everything from it's, you know, from inception like in terms, you know, all the way to when it hits our warehouses gives us a very unique perspective. And and also, you know, kind of in turn helped us ride the initial shock of it all. And we were able to assure our team that, yes, things are not going to be easy, but we are as a company in a better position than a lot of people. And that that is our opportunity. Now, that is now that we have that as our base. What we do next is really going to determine our success and is going to determine our trajectory and is going to determine how we make a mark in the future of retail. Yes. Is your factory also in New York? No, our factory is in Pakistan. So I am from Pakistan. Um, We are. So my family has been in denim for like over three decades and we are manufacturers. So we make about we make millions of jeans a year. And I think the number is like a million jeans every 45 days. And so, and, you know, for a lot of big brands globally and our unique, what we are known for is technologically advanced fabrications from spinning, which is when we make the yarn to the final finished garment. And 
and creating the most sustainable way possible, which into kind of simplify it, oversimplify it even sometimes is that each of our genes uses latest technologies like ozone and laser and so and is created using solar powered energy sources. Yeah. And of average pair of genes uses 1500 gallons of water. We use less than 10 liters. Oh and my it's, gosh. And it's, and it's kind of crazy. And we recycle, we have an on-site water recycling plant. We have all these different elements that really, like they're so rooted in innovation. They're rooted in like so many things that people never really thought about. And now when COVID's happening, environmental crisis, all of those things have come together and the team has just been actively working for the past few months to make sense of it all. And how do we tell our story? Yes. I would love to hear your perspective because I know a lot of brands, um, especially younger brands, direct-to-consumer brands that are emerging, um, there's some hesitation to share factory names. And some people say that is because uh, maybe higher-end brands are produced in the same factory and the factory, you know, there's that, I guess, conflict where factories don't like to share who they're creating for. There's the price difference. There's um, if it's the same quality in the same factory, what's the what's yeah, the price discrepancy, I guess. Um, how do you describe that? Why? I know that um, Warp and Weft all one under one hundred dollars. What's the price point of DL 1961? And I guess um, the production, the quality, I, how does it differ? So it definitely does differ. I think my dad says it the best when I was going to buy my first blender when I moved to the States at 18. <laughs> you get what you pay for. Yeah. And I think that, so what I, what my argument to people who say that, and I was like, listen, reveal everything, be fully transparent because that helps you pick factories that are in, you have to pick factories that are in line with your brand's core ethos. Yeah. And so if sustainability, accountability, human uh human rights like all of that should be by the way are part of your core ethos (laughs) that should be number one right yeah and i think number two is that if factories like for instance i can give an example with dl and warp very clearly warp is an under hundred dollar product and it has a far it has a lot of size inclusivity and a lot of range in terms of fits and but the fabric range is less yes Okay. Right. Like the fabric quality is not nearly as good as what we give for DL because, and because we're able to control it on a fabric level and from a yarn level, we yeah. can you really get what you pay for. With DL, you have blends of Modal and Xfit and cotton and Lycra that are so, that give you this insane performance, durability, softness, comfort that, yes, you have to some extent in DL, but maybe if you use four, like seven blends in, in DL, then you are using two blends in warp, right? Right. So, and it's, and it's really, you get what you pay for, right? Like with warp, you're getting this insane range and with DL, a range of uh, like sizes and fits. And with DL, you do have a range of fits, but it is more the range of fabrications, the technology, like, and it is, it is really, there is a difference. And I'm happy yes. to say that there is a difference and there should be a difference. And that way we are able to then fairly price it for the end consumer, which yes. is the most important. Like for us to say, like for us to inflate a price and for us to just say, ah, okay, we rather it costs $300 or $200 because we're spending X amount of dollars of that in marketing because DL's customer base requires a little bit, you know, they, they want models that are more expensive or they want like to be 
seen in Harper's Bazaar or Vogue or whatever, you know, the advertising costs. We don't believe yeah. that. We believe in the product. If you build an amazing product, people will come. Why should we give extra dollars that could go into the product, that could go into social responsibility to magazines and advertisers and nothing against them, but that's not our business model. Our oh business my gosh, model we have to like, dig into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so our business, and especially in times of COVID, right? Like our business model is to really now, and it's it was, and and you know, we we started talking about it in warp, but now as a as a conglomerate or as like you know a collection of companies or whatever, we really want to really build our social responsibility platform and unapologetically so. Where yes. we don't want fashion, the fashion industry to tell us, ah, you have to be here in order to be taken seriously. Why? We want to build the best possible product without which is great for you, great for the yep. planet, and you can feel the difference. So totally. that kind of logical thinking was missing from fashion, I think. Definitely. Talk about the, I guess, the motivation for Warp and Weft. It was uh, b- born, in, I guess, in the direct-to-consumer era, 2017, almost 10 years, am I correct, after DL 1961. Um, was it an opportunity to kind of play in both spaces, test out this new, I guess, almost more, is it more, would you describe it as more values-driven? There's more... Um, size inclusivity. You put sustainability maybe more front and center than with um, DL 1961. Or how would you describe that? Why why two brands? So, you know, this question is something that I think about a lot as well. And recently so, right? Like as we, you know, as we've consolidated a lot of things and there is a space. For, and even after think, I always felt there was a space for both. And now after thinking about it more and seeing things play out, there is definitely a space for both, Right. The denim market is a multi-billion dollar denim market. Everyone wears jeans. And there are different customers at different price points that require different things. DL started with the same, you know, was sitting with J Brand and Rag and Bone and Page and AG. And those brands, that sort of matrix of brands, that customer required something different. They, They responded to different marketing stimuli they responded to different sort of visual stimuli they responded to so many you know like as every market segment is and the premium customer was looking for a brand that was very heavily driven by celebrity yes then later by influencer and was very driven by what was in the fashion magazines and what was considered quote unquote cool and i think you know we really tried to talk about the technology the sustainability but jill people didn't want to hear it they yeah. only cared if, and that's when you look back and you see all these amazing celebrity campaigns and the push. And it's not that less celebrities wear us now. We just don't care. I don't <laughs> shouldn't say that Meghan out loud. Markle is wearing no. it. I know this. <laughs> I just, exactly. And I think that that's an example of someone who actually bought the jeans yep. and probably Googled sustainable jeans and cared about the message, right? And I think nice. that it is, you know, she probably cared that it was women-led. She probably cared that it was sustainable. She probably cared that they were comfortable. Yeah. And I think that and I and and we have a very good distribution in Canada. So I'm sure she she knew the brand from there as well. So I think that that's what DL was built on. And it really frustrated me that we had this amazing product that has such a rich history and story and storytelling, and people only cared if a celebrity wore it. Right. And and then also, you know, we would go to department stores and I had this moment once I was at an, I can't name the department store and I, and I really, or, you know, we were doing an in-store event and I went and saw every floor 
And there was, you know, in every department store, there's a floor that is for people that, you know, there's, there's the premium floor, which is like, wow. There's, yeah. a, there's a designer floor, which is like, wow. And then there's a floor that, you know, it's the brand, like, it's just not that the brands are not good. It's just not presented. It's like a forgotten floor. And unfortunately, that was the size inclusivity floor. That was yeah. the age inclusivity floor. And that's not okay. And I really wanted to sort of reimagine an every like denim for that customer and just be like, listen, let's make a denim brand for everyone that is yep. affordable and that get, that has an easy entry point that, you know, like, like an, and offer them a sustainable technological well-made denim product that doesn't give them anxiety. And yeah. I think that that's how Warp started. And, and it really is playing in the market space of marketplace and market space of like, you know, you have your Abercrombie's and you have your Aeropostales and you have your Levi's and it really wants to cater to the masses. And uh, the way I see it is that your first pair of jeans that don't give you a lifelong complex, I think everyone has had those when you're in the <laughs> refitting room, should, you know, should be or can be, and we would love them to be warp and weft. And then if you want to, gra- you know, you love the fit, you love the comfort, you love, you know, it's already better yeah. in terms of quality. And then you you graduate a bit more and then you wear DL, right? Like you are really into the quality and you want something, you know, as you move into your 30s, you want things that last longer and you don't want to buy as frequently. So I think that's how we think about it. Um, that makes sense. And so, yeah. And I think with DL, the last thing I want to say about is that now with the disruption in the market, and and our team has been working so sort of tirelessly into developing a new brand direction for DL, not a new brand direction, bringing it to what our core is, which is fabric fit and function. And with these beautiful campaigns that we're doing that elicit that feeling of freedom and functionality and just, I don't know, you'll see it. It's going to, it's going to play, it's going to be launched uh, in the next couple of months. So we're very excited to, tell that story to an audience that hopefully is very receptive. And I think the social media and internet has really leveled the playing field as well in the last 10 years. Yes. Sorry, so when I you, rambled on a lot. No, I love it. So when you go to tell that story, uh, you kind of uh, said marketing dollars, spending a lot on all of these big campaigns is not maybe your thing. Uh, how will you go about getting that story out? I think what's really exciting, and I actually can talk about, I can give a special shout out to a few people that we're working with. Um, So Mm -hmm. I actually, I've always loved the idea of working with artists, right? Like artists and, and I love, listen, we have worked with some amazing, amazing photographers that have created very artistic, gorgeous campaigns for us. However, the structure of production was too high. It's not sustainable. And it is, you know, not only you create these high quality campaigns, but you have eight images that are 2D, for X hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands right. of dollars, uh, then add, then then you spend another couple of hundred thousand dollars putting them in magazines, and that seems a bit inefficient, right? So what we've done is we have, you know, our team has been so good at like using the internet, using social media to find amazing collaborators to do mini campaigns, to tell stories, to to work with artists, to understand their muses. Whether it is we're working with an amazing uh, creative agency now to, you know, to work with black and brown artists to, you know, to understand like their muses, to understand, you know, to, to kind of yeah. showcase like 
to for having them create product based off their muses and then tell that story. And I think that's one way that's one way that we're working. The another way is we're working with an amazing amazing photographer that we worked with at Warp on this campaign we did on the art of being a woman um called Lily Cummings and she okay. is incredible. She did this amazing 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 campaign called Bodies on Paper where she went around photographing women women all over the world and their bodies and she did it in such a the best way to describe it is poetic. You you yeah. look at it and you feel free. And I think everyone wants to feel free these days, right? Whether it is in their own body or in their physical space. So I think that working with artists that are really on the same wavelength as us on a macro level and from a philosophical level and translating that in a visual language is yep. really a fun adventure. Definitely. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but it's, yeah. it's, really, it's really all about storytelling and developing this very... Like, what does the intersection of art, creativity, activism, uh, you know, like what have to say, like poetry, what does that intersection look like in a modern brand? So Yeah, that makes sense. There's been a lot of conversation lately about like top of funnel versus bottom funnel uh, ads, marketing. Uh, is that working like like a campaign like that? Is it working to drive to the site? Is it working to drive sales? What is getting people to, again, to the site? and to shop authenticity and quality so yeah i think that and i'm gonna be very upfront i think with dl we never lost track of our quality in our product but i do think that we succumbed a little bit to the the lack of authenticity in the premium market i think that it was it was too inflated it was too focused as i said on celebrity and influencer which is not authentic we want to could control our narrative. And I think if you control your narrative and you have something to say, people will listen. People Definitely. will follow you. Because we did that so effectively with Warp and Weft, we are able to apply that to DL. And that's where we consolidated our creative teams, right? We consolidated our e-commerce teams. And I would like to think that experiment is paying off because I do think you learn something from each that you can apply to both. So... Yeah. Other than you, how? What other uh, teams, players are kind of uh, work on both brands? So our entire e-commerce team and creative team is shared. So that crosses social media, that crosses design. Uh, it's like like graphic design, digital marketing, e-commerce management, uh, and then of course we share our ops team. But that's you know shout out to them as well because they're amazing. They make all of this happen. But yeah, um, it's really it's really fun and it's almost. It also, I think, is keeps the team excited. Um, whereas first you would only look at brands in your segment. Now you're looking at brands in every segment. Yeah, so that it, makes it, sense. So, it's, so it, it, it keeps us very, like, um, very on our toes as well. So. Yes. In the past, were you doing a lot of gifting? Were you doing a lot of influencer partnerships? Obviously, it seems more so, yeah, you're working with these, these artists, maybe these ambassador types. Maybe it's more of a... I don't know, long-term or a different relationship. Uh, what's been the approach to date? I think it has to be a layered approach, right? So instead of hoping, I think there was this sort of misconception that that if you gave an influencer, you paid an influencer X amount of dollars to promote one product, you thought that they was going to convert immediately. That's not the case. The customer yeah. is very, very smart. You probably hear this every day. Um, I think you find the right fit for your 
for for your marketing initiative, right? So with a project like storytelling of like, you know, if you're you're telling your story of racial inequality and you're telling your story of, uh, you know, uh, like what your artistic journey has been, it only makes sense for it to come from and be created by someone who's lived that, right? Yep. Um, however, on the flip side, if you are trying to sell the shape, if you're trying to showcase the shape, the fit, the fabrication, it only makes sense that there is a creative team, storytelling, there is a model. It's a more traditional, that's where fashion sort of excels to yeah. tell that kind of story of, you know, shop, like to really have the customer understand the, the features of the product. So we, you know, we said, we don't ask everyone to do everything. And then general overall, I think people love to see the products on UGC, right? They like to see user-generated content. And yeah. I think having influencers wear it in their daily life in and take it, you know, and it has to be diverse and it has to be all those kinds of things like body diversity, racial diversity, that goes without saying age diversity and having a subset of influencers showcase the product in real life yeah. and showcasing it in their life makes the product more approachable. So it's a very, you know, from the storytelling and artistic point of view, you work with the artists and the people who have that story that is very off the moment. Then you have our internal team really control and create the story of the product, which is fabric, fit, function, you know, all of that. And then you have the UGC and the influencers show the product in real life that makes it look approachable, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. You On the topic of authenticity, um, you again, you mentioned this project with uh, black and brown artists, I guess artists. Um, anyway, yeah. but yeah, that's coming up. Um, has that been something that you've done in the past where you've um, maybe ensured a diversified cast or um, have you put diversity um, at the forefront or you that's something that you've always um, had your eye on? Is that newer? Is that, a, like you said, a goal? Um, and how do you kind of roll that out in an authentic way if it is if it is newer and I, I think that I have kind of a split answer because I can answer for both the brands with Warp I think that it was really like a no-brainer we didn't be we don't when someone a model walks in or an influencer emails us or we find them on Instagram we almost made it a point to search far and wide or like look for people because that was part so ingrained in like the pillars of the brand to yeah. look for uniqueness to look for people who had something to say to look for to look for that um you know like that fire right totally. and that's how we cast a lot of things um so it was often i think we did a very very good job um and literally shout out to chris megan you know who really made that happen on the warp team who went far and wide to really cast this diverse group of people who are going to be such great represent representatives of our brand. Yep. And I think that they did a very exceptional job. And they did it in a way that didn't seem contrived, that didn't seem tokenized, that didn't seem like we were... You know, it. that's often a lot of people... You know, a lot of the stuff you're reading now is like, yeah, they hired a, you know, a certain model because they had to fill a quota. Right. We never had that. We hired people and we worked with people because they were truly the most interesting people. And we got <laughs> to know them. And, and, and I think that when you have that lens, automatically you're going to have 
an equal and diverse cast, right? Like that's how right. it, that's how it works. And the reason why we did that and why the precedent was set, it was because in the premium and in luxury, there was this overwhelming tokenization of race. Yeah. Overwhelming. Um, at DL, when we did fashion shows, and I think it's worth sort of looking up in Google and all, you know, in, 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 on YouTube, is our past campaigns or our past fashion shows and the casting, wherever I had an opportunity and I've never really spoken about it, but I never, wherever I had an opportunity to represent diversity, I did because yes. I felt that there was such an overwhelming amount of racism in the industry, which people just didn't want to talk about. And they said it in such a way that like, ah, she's not right for it. Or he's not right for it. You don't represent like, there's so many ways that you can say it without actually sounding yes. racist. Yep. But it is racist. And I think that when we were casting people, I think that a lot of people. I was almost shocked by the resistance. Oh, wow. Crazy. And and I, you know, I'm not it's not this is not the time to share my experience, but I am from Pakistan. I am a I am a Muslim. I am a woman. I, you know, I live in I live in New York. Um, I went to an American school in a post 9-11 world. Uh, in Pakistan and you know like we had and then then I came to New York and I worked in fashion and there was many moments there were many moments that I felt initially I felt that there was you know I just wasn't considered chic enough or I wasn't and I wasn't considered like uh, you know early on in my fashion career you know and it was it was and I felt I had this huge complex yep and and I, I don't know, like, I look like a very digestible version of what a Pakistani Muslim woman look like. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I have fair skin, I have all that. And I, and so a lot of people were very, they, they, they were a little confused. Yeah. You know, I'm a little confused sharing my story. Right. So, and it's, but if I felt it, it's a very small level. I can only imagine my sister would always say like, you know, like she, is a bit darker than me, like whatever. And we're same family, same platform, everything. And she used to feel a lot more racism. And it's kind of interesting how that works, you know? And, and it's, so I can only imagine what, how, you know, how other people, like we felt it in such a small way and we had all these different advantages of education and, you know, we didn't have to experience so much, you know, sort of social injustice, but it is crazy, you know? And it it is is crazy. It is, and it is something that never was talked about. I am still uncomfortable talking about it. And I think we, I know we're going on a bit of a tangent, but I think that one of the first meetings that we had was, I understand I have my story, someone else in the company has a story. We all have a story, you know, but it's not the time we can talk about it, but we all need to stand behind this movement. The, you know, we need to support the black and brown community because this is the move. Like we all have our stories, but we need to check it at the door because yeah. this is the movement that will set the precedent for fixing this system yes. because it is so deeply broken. And yep. if we all don't, because you get so many people saying, why do I use for this? I have my story of this. It's like, yes, if you don't fix the oldest pro- racial problem right now in the place that you are living, you are, your, your story is going to only get worse. Yes. 
And we are all in this together. We all need to stand behind the black and brown community in solidarity. And it is not something that I'm saying that is, you know, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, right? I hope I'm not offending anyone. I'm not saying this because it's the right thing to say. I'm saying this because it is so, if we don't stand in solidarity now, we are we are all heading towards a more uncertain future. And and in a, in a future that is has more things, like there's more going to be more unrest. Yep. That's the thing. We need to cultivate this community of acceptance. So I think that that's something that we have to apply into fashion as well. And I here, think that, here, Sarah. Yes, thank you. go ahead. And so, and I think that that's something that is something that we need to be extremely conscious about. We don't need to make people feel tokenized. We don't need to feel, make it feel transactional. We really need to do it in a way that seems authentic. And I yes. think for a premium brand, in the space that we were in, we are in, that is going to be a little bit of an uphill battle. I would, if, if everything was, if everyone was always receptive to, to this, just yep. racial equality, then we wouldn't be having these problems, Joe. So we all need to take a look and be like, okay, maybe the joke that we made, maybe the model choice we made, why do we make that? Yes. Self-questioning, checking, talking about it. So it's, it's, you know, we have a lot of hard conversations and making choices that, we can be accountable for is key in business right now. Yes. Oh, talk to me about that. Cause I, w- I just put in our Slack channel that I was thinking about a story on uh, the fact that traditional, maybe not traditional, longer standing brands that maybe weren't born in the last five years, 10 years, don't have, uh, they're not values driven at the core. And now they're coming out, they're saying Black Lives Matter. They're saying, they're, they're sharing their beliefs. They're sharing their values. Um, I had Trina Turk on the podcast. She was saying that she's getting a lot of backlash. Um, she, her company is 25 years old. She, they're, you know, they're coming out and making statements about what's happened in the, in the last month and they're getting comments like stick to fashion. Have you heard things like that? Because again, you're a premium brand. Maybe you have a, an older, more conservative customer than maybe Warp and Weft. Um, any, any conflict there? I, with Warp, no, because right. I think a lot of our customer came to us because of our values. With DL, we have not received any backlash. And there is a reason why, because I think, um, and again, Megan, Chris, and I, we early on had this discussion where we were like, okay, how do we manage both channels, right? Like, how do we, like, how do we talk to, a customer, to customers where they will actually listen? Right. If you go right out of the gate and say something and actually, you know, the goal is to have people listen. The goal is to get people there. Some people, there's a different step. There's more steps. It's longer. Some people require a different, you know, perspective. And I think that having one blanket approach is actually not good. Right. I think that, I think that you, if you lose someone's ear, then you're not doing anything for the movement. Zero. Yeah. And I think that with DL, we are lucky that, you know, because the customer for DL, you know, sometimes when they look up the company and so forth, they're already over the fact that it is, you know, minority, like, you know, it, there's a, it's women-led, it's owned by a minority. So they already sometimes know about it, right? right. And I think that we have that filter. So we are really lucky. But, at the same time, I think that 
explaining things more gently yeah. and explaining things through art, explaining things through uh, like, you know, like that's what we're doing that project of storytelling of black and brown artists. And it's like, listen, like, look what we're creating together. Look how beautiful it is. Right. Look, yeah. look what is being created. Like leave your, like leave your like whatever lenses or preconceived notions that you have about a certain community at the door and look at the art for what it is. Look at the product for what it is. And if you look at it, I, I you know, I said, I, I, I often said, like I thought about this a lot a while ago, um, where I, you know, I said, your favorite things are created by people who don't look like you, who don't have the same skin color as you and who don't have the same religion or country or, you know, nationality as you. But they're your favorite things. What if you took a little bit of the love that you have for those things and extended it to the people who created them? How mm-hmm. does that change your perspective? Does that make you uncomfortable? Does that make you love it more? Does that make you, does that change things within you? And yeah. that is what we're focused on. I was going to say, I appreciate you, you saying that. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but, and continuing to talk because um, I do think like the people that are receiving backlash, kind of like tough noogies on the people <laughs> giving the backlash because really now is the, yeah, now is the time. Like you said, in order to move forward, in order to, for this to be the pivotal moment, is it just about consistency in, in, in speaking up? Exactly. And if there is backlash, what's wrong with that? Like, right. actually, like, what is wrong with someone saying, hey, you didn't do this right? And then that comes that comes on top of the agenda on the next morning's meeting. Okay, guys, is this, like, how do we do better? Right? Yep. Like, if, so, if you're consistently being validated for things that are hurting people, right? If you are consistently going in a direction that is really hurting someone, or that is offending someone, instead of inflating this bubble, like this bubble that you're creating around yourself, you have that is every opportunity someone criticizes you is a moment that you check yourself. Like, yeah. is this right? Is this wrong? How do we do better? Even as a person, that's what I try to think. If someone says, you know, Sarah, like, I didn't like what you said here, or maybe, you know, you were on this podcast and you said things that really seemed, you know, that offended me. I will be uncomfortable, of course, because I, you know, I went in with the best intentions, but maybe my execution or the way I communicated and my semantics were not in line with that. And maybe next time I'll think about that. And that only makes me better, right? Like right. who benefits in that? I do. Right. So I think people need to think about it like, okay, you're going to get backlash, but at the end of the day, who benefits? You do. Your company right. does. The people who work for you do. Definitely. That's how change happens. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about you? It seems like you moved fast to kind of get some support in kind of moving in the right direction or advancing some of the, um, I guess, initiatives you've had in place. But tell me about your new um, consultant. I was kind of, I the title <laughs> um, was interesting to me. Social Innovator Catalyst for Cultural Transformation. Who's Barbara? Barbara is an amazing woman. So Barbara was my second boss um, when I worked at Parsons and she has, she still to this day has an amazing agency called Barbara Ballard. Uh, It's her full name. And she has, what doesn't Barbara do? Barbara has Uh written a book. Barbara has made documentaries. Barbara is in very deep, ingrained in the politics in both DC 
and New York. She's a huge facilitator of not only black and brown artists, but anyone, but she really has created a robust community, a diverse community of people around the world from, you know, East, from, from, from East Asia, all the way to the Indian subcontinent to like all the way, you know, to all the States and the Middle East. And she really has been this amazing connector of people and ideas. And by doing that alone, she has created so much acceptance and empathy amongst the people that she works with, right? Like if you take people from all over the world, you take and you bring them together on one platform or on one project, you learn so much and you have so much cultural respect and, and, uh, and information and education about those people. Right. So that's, so that's really what Barbara does. And I think by doing so and having this amazing community, she has access to a lot of, she's really on the pulse of what's going on. So, and she is someone that, gave me a chance, right? Like I was, you know, I was a design student and I really wanted my break in the art world, right? Like when I was in school. So, and I was right off a really horrifying, but taught me a lot of work ethic, you know, internship at a very big fashion company and like not fashion company, a fashion publication. And I learned a lot, but I felt, I've never felt so down on myself in my life. And I think Barbara was very, she showed me, really like the what was beneath the surface of the New York art scene because it was back in the day so it's probably 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago maybe 12 years ago where there was a lot of movement happening in and it still is but it where no one was talking these amazing minority artists and no one was talking about them Mm -hmm. and the galleries would not accept them and it was and the the art world was predominantly white and for many many reasons right like the the high price artwork if we even no one even's talking about that right now the high price artwork and the people that were paid for that for the price it's it's crazy by the way the the racial yeah. inequality there um we could do an entire different conversation about that but i'm sure and she is someone who showed me that build the best product make the best painting do the best installation and be patient your time yep. will come. And I think that's some, those values really are very important right now for me. And I've been thinking about them a lot. Like the reason, the, the things she taught me are the things that I actually helped get me through now, because it's a game of patience. It's a game of building the best things. And then if you build something that's so amazing, and then you remove the race filter off that. You remove the person who actually made it out of the equation. You show it to mm-hmm. people. The work should stand for itself. Definitely. And 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 I think that she taught me that. And I, and I really, it helped me accept my own position in the racial matrix of society in the States and in New York. So I think that if she could do that for me, I'm sure that she, you know, using her voice and having her voice sort of dictate what we should do next and is I'm very excited to work with her and see what's going to go happen there. Yes, that's exciting. Well, I, we're almost out of time, but I have to touch on, I mean, <laughs> sales <laughs> right now. Are, are things moving to sweatpants? Are things moving to leggings? What's been happening in the last three months in terms of sales? Shockingly, everyone wants to wear pants. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I, it is. And you know, the, the, the yoga wear, the athleisure that's actually selling out is the one that's more fashion based. Yes. And people, because, you know, I, I actually don't think I have worn this much denim now that I have now. I would, 
I was like at leisure queen. It was horrible. I would go to work. I wouldn't care. Now I wake up in the morning and I wear jeans because I do think it may, gives you a sense of structure in your work from home day. Sweatpants are fun if you've been wearing, you know, it's it's like they're like a like a guilty pleasure. Right. right. But you don't want, like it's almost fun to wear sweatpants. It feels like you're doing something like, you know, uh, out of <laughs> your routine. But as far as our sales, I actually, our sales actually increased um, because Stop. our denim is, a, you know, because of the comfort, because of the fit, because of the technology, because of the sustainability, people who didn't want to wear leggings and wanted something new, wanted to support new brands, wanted something that was functional for their lives. That's where sort of our 10 years of work came into play or, you know, our, our, the, the, the amazing publications that supported us in Warp and Weft and, you know, like that, all of that really helped. So we are okay. Um, hopefully touch wood. It really scared me first when our sales went up because I was like, oh my God, are people panic buying? <laughs> I know yes. I was like I almost wanted to email customers being like listen guys I know we're amazing but I I really <laughs> think you should save your money like I like I I really think like no I'm I'm Don't not even question kidding. that Sarah <laughs> I I was worried because I if you you know if you get to know me I'm a very long term person like <laughs> I I I think that I want people to to just save their money. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you probably saw the dip or it, around March, like everyone. And then since then, it's been solid, like no layoffs, none of the, the I guess, bad no, stories. No, we had to. No, I think that's something where I have to, you know, part of accountability is admitting where we had to make, we had, we downsized our business. We yeah. had, we, we downsized our, we saw a spike in e-commerce sales, but all our ins because with DL, a majority of the business and with Warp was through either box partners, you know, like subscription partners. Oh, yeah. Or, or um, in-store, like in-store and department stores, like special store and device. And so we actually downsized our business and were conservative and we had to make layoffs. We made, we had to furlough people and we had to get very, you know, scrappy about it. And it was the most heartbreaking thing that I have ever done in my life. And I was so, I think the feelings of embarrassment, I know there was this bigger, you know, pandemic. And I'm so sick of talking about that and giving, you know, giving that so much like time, but like, and, and, you know, I get it, but I did feel, oh my God, maybe I could have built this better. And oh. maybe, and so now we are building it to with last any pandemic. Right. Yes. So, and I, and I talk to people in the team and I tell them, listen, guys, let's make you irreplaceable. Yes. Let's make this role like so key to the company that we need you, that you are, you feel needed and we need you and you're pandemic proof. And I think that that's how employers need to be looking at the roles. And, and just one last thing that really would bother me and, it really, really bothered me is that our layoffs were less compared to a lot of people because, you know, I know other people in premium who laid off 90% of their teams, 80% of their teams, right? Yeah. Because, and a lot of people in D2C that laid off an insane amount of people because I do think a lot of D2C people took a lot of beauty brands we love, a lot of, you know, clothing, athleisure brands we love 
had these insane valuations of what? You know, and I would always tell our team, I would be like, guys, how are, how are these real jobs where they had given, created a false sense of hope and achievement yes. because they got insane valuations, they got insane money, and they were creating jobs that were not real. And they were giving people, they were every girl or every guy who worked in these companies was drinking the Kool-Aid and felt they could be the CEO yeah, without there being an actual career trajectory to get there. And that kind of deception is something that troubles me deeply. There are companies that I respect so much, North Face, REI, Ben & Jerry's. Like these are companies that are not, you know, like they are built to last. Levi's, like they are built to last. Mm-hmm. And it is, these are companies that care about their people. They care about the future. Yeah. I don't know if that D2C CEO cared about, they even thought the idea of the pandemic was real. Even yeah. thought that this was a possibility that the bubble could burst. I, did they think about it while they were, you know, in Burning Man and like networking with this VC <laughs> and that VC? No. Right. And and that is something, it's a big self-reflection in our culture. And I think that if you're going to have people like me and people like, you know, all these kind of young CEOs, we need to have, I hope that this defines, this is something that when we go back to our work and we continue to run our companies or we start a new company, that is very, the sense of responsibility for others is deeply ingrained. Like. Yes. And I, and I think that's my only, I mean, that's very long. Sorry, I'm so long-winded about these things. But this is perfect. There's just a lot to say. Like, it's yes. about this. And you have the misfortune of speaking to me. One of the first people to speak to me. <laughs> I love this conversation. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. I was going to ask but, about, am I correct that your your brands are family? Are they family-owned? Are they, um, you, you haven't gone through the whole VC process? Would no. you call it an advantage? It is such an advantage. Last year, we went through that whole process for DL where, so we, they're both family owned. They're privately held and family owned by my parents and I, you know, and so it's, and, and my, and my siblings. So it is, it's like very, very family owned, you know, and it's (laughs) both the brands. And I think that that gave us, so last year when we were kind of seduced by the idea of like extreme growth and capitalism and all this kind of fun stuff and millions of jeans sold and whatever, more crap in the market. But anyway, yeah. uh, we were like, okay, let's get money pumped in for DL and grow it. And all these people come to you and they tell you. And it was like, it seemed wrong. I would yeah. be sitting across these older men. And you know, those stories were real. Like people who say, yeah, there's these older guys who say the craziest things and you just look at them and you're like, what? Like, I think that, and our old office had, the, the big conference room had glass yeah. and for the entrance, right? So every person who would come to enter the office right by the reception, I'd be sitting in those meetings and the people who knew me in the office would just look at my face and I would always be in the center. I would look at my face and I would just look at them and would be like, <laughs> save me, save me. And it was, what were it was, they saying? Was it just they were like, just saying, like, they were so confused. They didn't even know what the internet was. Like, it was just like, 
it was they were I can't even start I should I should start a podcast about the things that people have said to me like about this kind of stuff the racist gender like uh, gender inequality you realize that this is real and I was like are you actually saying this and thinking it's funny and they're stuffy white men for the most part for the most part and and can I tell you and they always had a younger it was very interesting a lot of them always had a younger woman who would sit next to them huh. and and who would be like analytics and this and that like and I almost feel they hired the woman to you know soften their image you know yeah. a little bit but no change happened so anyway so that was on the uh, that was in the premium side but in the warp side when warp was on was getting a lot of media press and whatever, and re- especially after the Forbes turned 30, we, a lot of VCs approached us. And yeah. VCs are a lot better. Like, they're a lot better. But the problem is, is because fashion is so dynamic and it changes so quickly. They, a lot of them sitting in, you know, California and, and, and New York have trouble understanding it because they're tech people and analytics people. And if you read what's happening with Facebook now, like, the analytics yeah. obviously are going to show they don't show the future of what we need to change, right? They show the customer as they're sitting now with X amount of dollars. So they're, to explain to them the vision of how we want customers to change, how we want a new customer, how we want to, you know, like it was a bit difficult, but they're then to better. I'm going to give credit where credit's due, you know? Yeah. But these old private equities and the these old men wow what a what a what a ride like i was just like but but yes it gives us an insane advantage to now you know pump our own money back into it and be like right. okay at least we're going to be accountable for this yes so, prior to march dl um dl 1961 you were what percentage would you would you say the breakdown of sales were were largely through wholesale partners specialty largely. stores yeah it was yeah. like 80% Yes. And will that change? Will will business maybe move more toward warp and weft while while it's all yeah direct and maybe you're seeing the advantage of that? Actually, no. We're we're gonna build both the sites to cater to different price points, right? Like okay. and and product diversification now that they're both kind of under me in yeah. a certain way, you can actually make sure that no product is duplicated you're offering different things to different customers you know it's it's uh it, it actually consolidate the consolidation has really helped tighten things up but with dl we're building the biggest baddest platform for denim out there which yeah. was which was which was a uh, you know a brand that i really admire is alo yoga and i think they've done and their sales have been booming uh they and rightfully so right like so and they they do a very amazing job and how I would I would love DL to sort of follow in that footsteps in terms of denim. Yeah. Does a premium price point work with the DTC model, would you say? Yes, because we're not that expensive. We are still under $200, yep. which gives us an advantage. Um, but as I said, every day is dynamic, right? If we decide to increase our price, decrease our price, we're going to now be very thoughtful about those decisions because... At the end of the day, like, as I said, we have to be accountable to our people and the product and and actually do it justice and make sure we build something that can would last the next crisis, because this is the first of many. Yes. One more question, because sure. Something fun that fun, (laughs) timely that came up this morning. Uh, You mentioned earlier catering to the masses uh, or what works 
what sells. Um, the news that came out with um, Kanye West teaming with Gap. Just wondering, I mean, who for denim? That's obviously a, a large denim denim retailer. Uh, what does that make for competition? As you see it, who's does every brand denim brand have a unique customer that? Um, anyway, is that competition? Uh, yes and no, right? So I think that Kanye working with Gap is very in line with what he's been successful at, which is very much taking like a sort of very iconic American or an iconic company or so forth. The key wants to reach people. And I think that he wants to make his point of view accessible and he's doing that and he loves denim and he's, he's, he's always wearing jeans, right? So I think that makes sense that he would do something with, you know, with Gap, which, but as far as competition goes, I think the denim market is so big that there's going to be, there's still a lot of people who want, you know, there's a denim brand for everyone and it's what you identify with. And I'm very excited to see what Kanye is going to do with Gap. I think I'll also buy a pair. So, but I, but as I said, if we want, we don't want to be linked to like a celebrity or, or a moment or, you know, like he is an amazing artist, right? But we want to build something that is dependable. North Face, REI, like things, you know, like Patagonia, like these are, these are companies that we look up to, um, that don't really have a face, um, that have, they're just known for quality and sustainability and inclusivity. So that's what we want to be known for. Don't link to a potential trend. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sarah, this has been so great. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you to you and the entire Glossy team. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Thank you. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.